Not that anybody is following this too closely, but just so you know, last night we had our Tri-Parish Basketball Tournament, and we won again, back to back. <laughs> but this is the worst trophy I've ever seen in my life, so I'm gonna buy a new one so people care more. But t today in the Gospel, <coughs> we get an everyday glimpse of Jesus' day. If you, you know, like a day in the life of Jesus, what's it like? There's all this stuff that happens during the day. You know, he, he ends up first going to his, the, the closest people, his apostles, right? Simon's mother-in-law is sick. And she had like, it says she has a fever. That, that was a bad thing in the Old Testament. Like, like in the old days, the ancient days, when you had a fever, it was not good. That meant you were probably going to die. And uh, I don't know if I've said this before, but Archbishop Fulton Sheen has a great line. He says, you know, perhaps the reason Simon Peter denied Jesus three times was because he cured his mother-in-law. <laughs> you know, so. But anyway, he cures her. And then, you know, he, he's, he's ministering to all these people. And then it says, long after the sun had set, he, so this is way into the night. He's driving out demons and curing diseases. And then he gets up super early in the morning before the sun has risen and goes out and prays. And then he does it all again. In another town in this little area of northern Israel called Galilee. You know, there's a lot of speculation about the hidden life of Jesus. We really have no written record of it in Scripture. And what I mean when I mean the hidden life is when he was 12 years old. Until he was 30 years old. There's this span of time, right? When he's 12 years old, he's, we find him in the temple. He's lost in the temple and he's found. And then we don't encounter him again until he's 30 and he starts preaching about the kingdom of God. So what happened during those, those hidden years? Even after, you know, the return from Egypt when he was a toddler. What was he like? We have nothing written about that. There are, however, these books called the Gnostic Gospels. Like the Gospel of Thomas the Gospel of Peter, and they're not locked up in the Vatican secret archive where nobody can get to them. They're actually online, so if you want to go and read them, you can. And they're a little bizarre. They're a little bizarre. And so why, why, were they, why does it say Peter and Thomas? They were using the apostles' names to try to make a name for themselves. And the early church had to sift through this stuff to say what was real and what wasn't, what lined up with the, the actual eyewitness accounts of John and Mark and Matthew and, you know, and Luke. But in these Gnostic Gospels, I'll just give you a couple examples of, of how strange they are because they do talk about the hidden life. There's this one, he says, when he was five years old, Jesus was playing down by a brook and he was playing with some other little kids and the water's just flowing along and then all of a sudden Jesus just puts up his hands and commands the water to stop and it does and it pools up. And the other kids get upset because they were having fun playing in the brook. And then Jesus goes over and where there was like the silt, you know, on the bottom of the, the little brook. He takes, he finds clay and he, he sculpt. he was a sculptor at five years old too. He sculpted 12 little sparrows. These little birds, he made them out of the clay and he set them on the, sh on the beach of this little brook. And then he looked at them and he said, fly away. And they all came alive and flew away. Strange. Now that's... Whatever, that's kind of nice. There's these other ones, though, but apparently, according to these crazy Gospels, 
Jesus had a bit of a temper too as a little boy. One time he was, he was racing in Nazareth, his hometown, and this other boy knocked him over to get him out of the way. And Jesus looked at him and said, you won't finish this race and you will never finish a race ever again in your life. And he died. Yeah, I know, right? He was like, what? He died. This is the best part of the story. Joseph, apparently is relatively close, comes over and is like, Jesus, knock it off. And he's like, fine. And he raises him back to life. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's just weird. Like, he, didn't, he, he lost his control of his powers as a little kid or whatever. I don't know. The reason I bring this up is, is because in the, in the gospel today, although we don't have a written record of how Jesus kind of lived his everyday life growing up, I think there's one little detail that gives away something that he did do daily in the hidden life. There's this line in the gospel, and it says this. It says, rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place and prayed. Whatever whatever Jesus' routine was in his ministry, in his hidden life, I would be willing to bet it included prayer every morning. And the reason I say this is because, you know, I know a lot of people that are like diehard workout junkies. I'm not one of them. (laughs) I would like to be one of them. Maybe not as hardcore, but if you get those people that are like super hardcore workout people, they never miss. It doesn't matter if they're out until 2 a.m. They are up at 5 a.m. taking their run, going to the gym, doing their whatever workout routine they have. And Jesus does the same thing. But every day he wakes up and he prays. You know that, <clears throat> honestly, and I'm, I'm not saying this to complain, I'm just saying it as a fact. This last uh, week and a half has probably been, it's, it's easily in the top 2% hardest weeks of my priesthood, ever. Now I wish I could tell you all about it, because there was a lot of neat things that happened in the midst of it too, but there's too many people that are involved and I can't you know, expose publicly all the, the, the people that were involved and, and, and the situations and all that stuff. But I honestly, I felt like Job from the first reading. I don't know if you caught that reading, but Job is not happy. He is, in fact, unhappy is a euphemism. He is miserable. Listen to this. He says, is not a man's life on earth a drudgery? Are not his days those of a hireling? He is a slave who longs for shade. I have been assigned months of misery and I shall not see happiness again. (laughs) That guy's depressed. But here's the thing. Each night that I came home at 9 or 10 o'clock exhausted, I just sat in my chapel and I just, almost on the verge of tears, I'm like, Jesus, I don't, I, I got nothing. I don't know what you want. I don't know what to do. You have to do something. And you know what? It worked. He did do something. Amidst all that chaos, there was this underlying peace in my heart. In the midst of not knowing what to do in certain situations, I was provided for. Point being, without prayer, I don't know how I would keep doing what I'm doing. And I don't know how people in everyday life survive without it. Maybe that's what Jesus is showing us today. You know, the Second Vatican Council said that Jesus Christ shows man to himself. 
So the way he lives is how we're supposed to live. So maybe all this power that he has comes from this simple daily routine of getting up early before the sun rises and praying. You know, maybe it was, it was getting up and praying was what he, he was able to manage his daily problems. The chaos of the mission he was involved in. The inconsistency of the apostles and their leadership. Heck, even his crucifixion, he prayed through. You remember what he did right before they came and got him to kill him? He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed so hard that he sweat blood. Prayer was such an intense part of Jesus' life. It must be part of ours. I don't know about, I think I've explained this to you before, but there is this, have you ever heard of the, the, the 10,000 hour rule? So the 10,000 hour rule is, if you want to be an expert at anything, you have to dedicate a minimum of 10,000 hours of practice to it. 10,000. Do you want to be an expert guitar player? 10,000 hours, minimum, not maximum, minimum. Now, when I hear a number like that, I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm too old to be an expert at anything anymore because I could be dead before 10,000 hours are up. But here's the thing. Maybe not to be an expert, but how many hours does it take to be decent at something? Sort of good. There's actual research on this. Did you know this? And you'll be blown away. 20 hours. 20 Dedicated, intentional hours. And you can become reasonably good at something. Now that's attainable. I got excited when I read that. 20. We can do 20. There's this guy, somebody showed me this website uh, just recently. It's called The First 20 Hours. There's this guy, his name is Josh Kaufman. And he found to be good at something, on average, it takes 20 hours of intentional, devoted work. He also figured out this. Of these 20 intentional hours, very few of them were spent on reading about the subject. When he started this whole thing, he wanted, he wanted to become a computer programmer. So he said, I found a decent introductory book to computer programming. I read that, and then I just started writing code for 20 intentionally consecutive hours. And he's like, and I came pretty good at making my own website, at writing my own computer programs. And so he started applying it to all these areas of his life. You see, information is good, it is, but it, it does us nothing if we don't do something with it. You need it, but you don't need a lot of it. What you need, what you have to do is work at it, practice it. Be intentional about it, daily. I was reading this article the other day. Did you know this blew my mind? You ready? Okay, here we go. Statistically, that's a hard word. Statistically, I think I said it wrong. Your GPA, okay, when you graduate high school, is as indicative of your success or failure later on in life as if you just rolled a die. What does that mean? It means your GPA when you graduate high school means nothing about your future success or failure. I have a 4.0. I don't care. If you have no work ethic, 
If you don't have an intentionality, if you don't have any discipline, I don't care if you have a 4.0. I know farmers that have grade school level educations that know a hundred times more than an NDSU PhD ag student. And they will work circles around them and make them look like fools. And if that PhD student went out to a farm and tried to run it, they would fail. So they don't have any practical practice. I just came up with that. <laughs> practical practice. I'm running out of words this morning. So what do you want to be good at? 20 intentional hours. Here's my thing. Lent is right around the corner, right? I want you to dedicate 20 intentional hours to prayer this Lent. What does that mean? Well, I'm not a mathematician, but there are 40 days in Lent. And I figure, if my math is correct, if you did a half hour every day, you would hit your 20 hours. And you might not be an expert at prayer, but you might be pretty decent at it. Now, inevitably, inevitably, you're going to say, well, I don't know how to pray. And that's okay. So at each of the entrances of the doors, back at the back, I got stacks of papers, is an article. It's one of the best, it is is an article that changed the way I prayed. Changed the way I prayed. I want you to take one. Read it. You got two weeks before Lent starts to form a plan. And maybe you get up early like Jesus did. And get that half hour of quiet, intentional prayer in. Or maybe you stay up late like Father Waltz. And get that half hour of intentional prayer in. But you get it in. You're intentional about it. And you make it happen. That little article that I gave you, that's your little bit of information you need. After that... Just get to work.